We're going to be in Revelation 9 tonight, so you can open up your Bible to there. Last time, we began to consider the second cycle of judgments, uh, and we have a lot to cover this evening, so I want to give just a couple of reminders up front, and then we'll read our text and get to it. So first thing I want to help us remember is that what we're thinking of tonight in these fifth and sixth seal judgments, they're happening in the same period of time as all, or excuse me, we're thinking tonight of the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. But they're happening in that same period of time as the first four trumpet judgments and as well as the first, you know, six of those seal judgments. Remember the seventh judgment was about the very end, the, 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 the day of the Lord. And so what we have going on in these, in these judgments that are being revealed here is, is a view of history of the time period between Jesus' first and second coming, just coming, just from different angles. And it's what we call recapitulation. Uh, the seal judgments were from the perspective of the throne room of God, and the emphasis was on the saints suffering in the time period and God's preservation and sanctification of the church through them. But the trumpet judgments, the angle that we're seeing here is on the judgments that come upon what's called the city of man, if you remember that from last time. City of man contrasted with the city of God. City of man is like the unsaved segment of the world, whereas the city of God would be those who are saved, those who are trusting Christ, the church. And also later on in Revelation, John will refer to that group of people, the city of man, as like Babylon the Great. And so these events aren't linear. They're not happening chronologically. They're happening all throughout the time in between Jesus' first and second coming, all according to God's sovereignty. And then secondly, we do see an intensifying of the judgments. With the seal judgments, we saw that they affected a quarter of the earth, uh, and, and they impacted a quarter of the, of the creation. And now with the trumpet judgments, we see that they pack, impact a third of the, uh, of the creation. And so there's a greater scope, a wider scope happening with these trumpet judgments. Thirdly, the, the final three judgments of the trumpets are going to be worse than the first four. They were described as three woes. We read about that last time. The first four contained apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery for the kinds of countless calamities that have been happening for the last 2,000 years. Things like war, famine, economic hardship, hardship plague, natural disasters, so things like earthquakes and fires and hurricanes, all in broad and general terms, those types of things that happen in this age. They are, if you remember, the means for the church to engage in prayer as well as a means of repentance for the elect, that God uses them in conjunction with the gospel call in light of them to soften the hearts of the elect and to see sinners saved. And then lastly, Six of these seven trumpet judgments have a clear allusion to the plagues that are in Egypt. And this reminds us of the fact that the church is actually in an exodus right now. Like if you remember back to what we read in Exodus and in the end of Genesis, really, where Israel is in captivity in Egypt and they are being, by the time we read in Exodus about it, they are enslaved and Pharaoh is an evil taskmaster in Egypt has, is not kind to Israel. They're using them. They want to be set free and serve their, serve their Lord, but they can't because they're trapped in Israel. And then God, through, the, through these 10 plagues, uh, where he hardens the Pharaoh's heart and eventually causes them to be delivered. And he, he leads them out through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness all the way to the promised land. And so what that 
that was a true event that happened, but it's also a type of what's happening for the church right now, as we've been seeing, that people, when they are saved, they are set free from the taskmaster of sin and death. Not Egypt and Pharaoh, but of sin and death. And we're on the way to the true promised land, the, the heavenly Canaan, the, the new Jerusalem, which is you know, the eternal uh, age and the new heavens and the new earth. And, and just in the meantime right now, to be in heaven with God the Father, even though we wouldn't right now have our bodies if we were there with him at the moment. So, and, and that's a, so, so the life that we're living right now for Christians, for Christians in every you know, period of time between Jesus' first and second coming, once they are saved, it's like they are, they are in their own exodus, going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So we're supposed to see that sort of typology through this. Remember with Jericho, they get to Jericho, you have to march around Jericho, then blow the seven trumpets and the walls go down. Well, again, here's these trumpet judgments as well that happen and with the seventh trumpet judgment it ushers in the eternal age so think about all those things uh, let's read the text and then we'll pray and, and by the way again we're reading all of chapter nine it's a lot of verses but that's the best way to consider what john's vision is here and what it's communicating um, all of this chapter is describing the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgment which is also then the first two woes so two trumpets and two woes which now, as you'll see, is going to take on a spiritual or demonic angle of what's happening in the world at the time of John's writing this, as well as today. So, the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 9. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun of the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two more woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfire and of sulfur. 
And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we need you. And as we approach this text this evening, we pray for understanding, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, that you would bring us into all truth, that you would help us to make sense of this vision, knowing that many have gone many different directions with it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to notice what is true and what will edify us and what will give you glory and that you would make our time beneficial this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, that is what we read. That is the, the fifth trumpet judgment and the sixth trumpet judgment. And what I thought of as I was reading it was the admonishment that we hear from the Lord a lot during his ministry. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Have no fear. Those, those four simple phrases in the English Standard Version, at least, they, they appear. When you add them all up, it adds up to a total of 105 times um, that it's mentioned. And there are probably other ways in which God instructs us in Scripture to not fear as well. It's a significant admonishment and encouragement from Christ to the church uh, to not fear. Probably many of you are aware of the Apostle Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, where he says to Timothy there, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. R.C. Sprawl notes that the prohibition uttered more frequently than any other by our Lord is the command, fear not. He said this so often to his disciples and others he encountered that it almost came to sound like a greeting. Where most people greet others by saying hi or hello, the first words Jesus very often used were fear not. It was that common of a phrase for the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all, there are many things that cause people to be afraid, to fear. Principally, principally, there should be a fear of the Lord before all mankind. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in the Proverbs. And it is right to fear God because he is holy and just. He's the only sovereign Lord and creator of all. None of, none of us are like God or can compare to Yahweh. We shouldn't think of God as if he is just a little greater than us. He is absolute and infinite. He is perfect, and he's what we would call simple, which means not made up of parts, so, in, so that he's not affected by anything. And he's self-existent. And even though we are made in his image, he is altogether different than us. But many people don't spend a lot of time thinking of God, and we know this is true by looking at the actions and habits of people. And I'm, I'm saying in the church even, but certainly outside of the church, this is the case. God is spirit, and many people go about their lives not thinking of spiritual matters. And if they do, for many, it is vain and empty man-made spirituality that is pursued. There are many other things 
that God in his wisdom through his eternal decree has purposed, which caused mankind to fear. And we have been talking about some of these things uh, through the seal judgments and now also the trumpet judgments as well. The calamities mentioned in the first four trumpets, for example, like earthquakes, hurricanes, and wars, and more. Fear in, in those moments would be perfectly understandable. I don't know if you, any of you guys saw some of the videos from the hurricane in Florida over the past like two weeks. I mean, you can imagine being trapped in some of that, and it would be terrifying. Fear would be an appropriate response. Uh, the descriptions of the creatures in this vision that we just read this evening in the fifth and sixth trumpet, fear, if we were taking God's word serious, would be a normal or expected response. A, a bottomless pit that opens and from it comes smoke, enough smoke that it darkens the sun and the sky. And But in that smoke are these locusts with the power of scorpions. And there's also have like the teeth of lion we lions we read. And their purpose is to torment those who don't belong to Christ. But the locusts are described more like something out of like a mutant horror movie than anything else that I could think of, really. I mean, they have, like, they, they say there's horses prepared for battle with crowns on their head and human faces and women's hair and lion's teeth and scorpion's tails and breastplates of iron. I tried to put one of these in, like, one of those online generators, those AI art generators. It's pretty interesting. But, you know, that's just what a computer thought of it. But there's nothing in in the physical world that can compare to all these things, yet John is using things in the physical world to try to describe what he saw. And we'll talk about what these things are in just a moment, but remember, the encouragement given to Christians is to fear not, to be not afraid, to, that, that none of these judgments that John has given in these visions, which are in a true regard terrifying, none of them are greater than God. In fact, they are all happening under God's sovereign control and rule. So the things John's original audience was going through at the time, the same kinds of things that the church endures and conquers in Christ throughout all this age that they go through, God, by telling us about them, is even giving us reason to not fear. That these things can't separate us from the love that he has loved us with. That our justification is secure because we are justified by what Christ has done and not how we respond to every little single thing that happens in our lives. And remember, the fifth trumpet corresponds to the fifth seal, but just from a different perspective. And the fifth seal is where we learn that the saints who perish in this age are with the Lord in glory. They are under the altar in the, in the throne room. And then in the interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we're reminded that the church in this age is sealed by the Lord with his mark on their forehead. They're, they're preserved and even called through these judgments. So we have reason not to fear, thinking even about these visions that should induce fear because of what they're explaining. And as it were, because he tells us of these judgments in advance, prophetically through John, we're given information that should make us not surprised when we see them unfolding before us or in history past. Or, and that should cause us not to fear as well, but really to rejoice in Christ because he has told us these things, to, to rest in Christ because he is sovereign over these things. And they are a means of graciously compelling us 
to remain in Christ because these things are a terror to those who aren't united to Christ. The church is not in the world. The, the, the church is not the world, but the church is in the world. But it's not the world. The church, the true new covenant community of saved people who are in Christ, Christ who has defeated death and sin as we have been seeing, He's using these natural events, these things like famine and ecological disasters, or ecological disasters, I mean, even through wars and oppression. These things are all being used by God to bring about his purposes, which will benefit the church. They happen through his will, which includes the gathering out of this world, those who will believe and trust in Christ through faith alone, by grace alone those chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.3, those given him by the Father, John 6.37. And what these fifth and sixth trumpets show us is that he uses more than just natural or physical means to accomplish his purposes, but he also uses spiritual means as well, or demonic agents as well. That's what we have being described here. These aren't Apache or Apache helicopters or tanks being described. This isn't some allusion to a giant Chinese or Russian communist army that's being described here. That kind of exegesis and interpretation of this text has led to much of the mystery and confusion surrounding this book that exists today. And imagine John's original audience. Like they would have no idea about what a helicopter is or a jet is or a tank or a giant Chinese army. But you know what they would fear, John's original audience? They would fear a plague of locusts that could wipe out all signs of life in their area. They would fear scorpions that could sting them and cause suffering. They'd have to check their, their, their sandals before putting them on, their shoes before putting them on, their, their beds before they get in them because there could be a scorpion in there. And so that's the imagery that John describes in this vision. So let's consider the vision. This is the fifth angel blowing the fifth trumpet, which is the first woe. A trumpet announces, it warns, and God is warning all those who have this book and who read it and study it of the judgment that those who aren't in Christ, who are part of the city of man, are being met with in this age between Christ's first coming and the parousia, which is the second coming. And so when the fifth angel blows his trumpet, we read, I saw a star falling from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So that's why we read those passages in our group discussion time in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, because they, they sound like that. Um, some have seen this actually to be a reference back to 810, where the cosmic event described there during the seventh uh, Trump or seal judgment took place. And so that would mean that this is an actual star. But that doesn't make any sense, really, because remember, these things line up, the, the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls. So that was the seventh seal, and this is the fifth trumpet. But more than that, it can't be a real star, I think, because this star is, is described with pronouns. It's he was given a key to the shaft in a bottomless pit, and he opens it up, and he lets out these creatures. And then notice verse 11. He is king over the creatures, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Both of those words... They mean the same thing, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. They both mean destroyer. They, they both 
are translated into English as destroyer. So this star is certainly a living angelic being, clearly also an evil angelic being. And so it's perhaps a high-ranking evil demon or it's Satan himself. I think it's the latter. He's called the king over the creatures that come down, that come out of the pit down in verse 11. That's more than just a powerful demon then. A very similar pit language is mentioned in Revelation 20. There we'll learn that Satan himself is bound in this pit. We'll consider what that means when we get there. But the text here in verse 1 is also parallel in something that Jesus spoke of in Luke 10:18, which I think should just utterly convince us about what is being talked about here. So look over to, into Luke chapter 10. You might remember this, but it's really startling how this lines up so well. Um, This, we're going to read this in its context. Uh, Verse 18 is especially important, but we're going to read it in its context so you can see a little bit more of what's going on here. This is the report that the disciples gave to Jesus after he sent them out to go announce that the kingdom of God had arrived. And so he sent them out to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand and they come back and this is what they tell them, verse, Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, meaning Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the disciples go out and they minister and they're given power over demons from Christ. They are freeing people from possession and they're banishing demonic activity from the region and this is all to coincide with what was prophesied about the coming Messiah, who is, who is Christ Jesus. And then Jesus tells them this interesting phrase, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's the same thing that is being spoken of here in Revelation 9. That's the star that falls to the earth. And we are confirmed that this is right by the description that our Lord gives in verse 19. Look at what he calls the demons that the disciples had power over. Serpents and scorpions, the power of the enemy. So look back now at Revelation 9. Notice verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. 9.5. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. 9.10, they have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And then in the sixth trumpet, which is the second row, verse 19, for the power of the horses in their mouths and their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by by those means they wound. A couple of things to remember here, okay? We aren't to be reading this passage literally here in Revelation 9. It is apocalyptic literature, and its imagery that we are seeing is meant to describe what John sees in a vivid way that both the original audience would understand and future audiences as well. Second, 
It's relying on previous information through the Old Testament, as well as the teaching of Christ during his incarnation. And so what we see considering these things is that in the fifth and sixth trumpets, they are describing God's sovereignty over the sorts of judgments that take place in this age, which are the results of demonic activity. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, he is their king, the king of fallen angels, of demons. He has loosened them from where they were held. Mind you, he was given the key to this shaft, right? So Satan isn't just any devil. He's God's devil. He's on a leash. He can only do what he's allowed. But he's loosened them from where they were. And this is why we see an increase of this kind of thing at the time of Christ, by the way. Why is there all of these demonic possessions and demonic activity happening during the times of the gospels commonly we say that it's because the light of christ was on the earth and so it the darkness was all the more visible and that's true and right as well too but i think it's also because at the time satan was cast down which we're going to see again here in a couple chapters in revelation um chapter 12 uh that he, Satan now opens this pit to let these demonic forces out. It's part of the means that God is going to use in the era of the new covenant to bring about judgment and to bring about the salvation of the elect. And these demons even are given limitation in their destructive capability as well, just like with the calamities described in the first four trumpets. They're being allowed to torment only for five months, we read. And then once again, they're able to kill only a third of mankind, we read in verse 18, the same percentage as the four trumpets. So I don't want to get bogged down in the descriptive details here, thinking some sort that these are like some sort of monsters or something like that. That's not, that's not what is being communicated here. This is demonic activity at work that is being described. So think things like false religion, perversions of Christianity, secularism, a society like ours today who can support abortion, which is nothing less than murder, and have, even have people and even doctors with a straight face say that a baby isn't an actual person until it's born outside the womb. That's demonic. Drag queen shows in front of little children Doctors convincing little children that they are transgender and then encouraging them to have surgeries and take puberty blockers. That's demonic. Those kinds of things are what is being described by this army of locusts. And remember, these judgments, the seal trumpets, the coming, the seals, the trumpets, and the coming bowls, they are all being sovereignly unleashed upon the world throughout the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming. Some of them highlighting the second coming specifically, of course, like with the seventh seal and the seventh bowl and seventh trumpet. But this fifth trumpet really helps us to see this, I think, because it's describing events that are clearly seen during Jesus' earthly ministry. These, these locusts are described as having scorpion stings and serpents' uh, tails to damage. The very things that Jesus said in Luke 10 about the demonic forces that his disciples had power over. The casting out of Satan and the power given to the disciples to tread on, quote, serpents and scorpions, which Luke 18 makes clear, is referring to demonic activity. That's nearly 2,000 years ago. It's not some future event. The Lord is explaining to us things that matter right now. It's exciting to know that we have here a word from the Lord that is helping us to be equipped and ready to deal with the things that we face in this world today. I'm grateful for it. 
So let's consider just a few more of the details before we get to some application from the text, okay? We're not going to go over everything in super detail. We don't have time for that. But verse 2, we see that there's a massive amount of smoke that comes up from the shaft. And again, it, like we read. So again, symbolism. But like a great furnace. And the smoke darkens the sun and the sky. That's judgment language. We've already seen that before. When the sky is darkened, that's a way of God in apocalyptic literature talking about judgment that he is pouring out upon the world, and it could come in different ways. But he's using this apocalyptic way of, of doing, of speaking about it. And it's speaking of the ability given in spiritual warfare to spiritually blind people to the truths of God. Much of the world is blind to the truths of God, even to the spiritual battles that are happening all around us. Now, there's also a, a call back to what we saw with the first four trumpets and the plagues in Egypt, which were judgment upon Egypt, which was a type of the world. But here in Exodus, or there in Exodus, the land is darkened, just like with what we read here, but this is the 10th plague. But the locusts went after the vegetation and just devoured all the vegetation in the land in that, in that excuse me, eighth plague, not 10th plague. And so just to make sure there's no confusion here, in the vision, John communicates in verse four that these locusts don't touch any trees or green plants at all even but only people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. That seal that was spoken of back in that interlude between the sixth and seventh seal judgments. And so again, this, these aren't literal locusts like they were back in Exodus. These locusts are apocalyptic literature to speak of demons and demonic activity. It's not an agriculture calamity. And those who are sealed, those who belong to Christ, those who are saved, when they are saved, the demonic activity doesn't harm them. Hey, Silas, come sit over here, please. Our souls are secure. Why? Because Christ has them in his hand, as it were. Christians are sealed by God. Verse 5, again, these demons are under the control of God. They don't kill, and it's for five months that they're allowed to do their damage. God is in charge of the length and the extent of what demons can do. And that brings us to verse 6, which is interesting. Revelation 9, 6 says, And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Those days, meaning the days John was living in, the time when Jesus was on the earth in his incarnated ministry, as well as our day today. And every, time, every day in the time period in between Jesus' first and second coming, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The point is simply this, that the demonic forces, once freed from the abyss, they're now, they're now free to assault people whom Satan has enticed in the city of man, They'll create spiritual famine. They'll bring hardship. They'll bring pain and suffering upon all those who are not sealed with the name of Christ. They will destroy all hope and make people wish that they were dead, although death itself flees from them. The demonic activity and army will leave these people as empty and as desolate as the locusts left the grain fields in Egypt back in 
the eighth plague. And think of all the people who seek satisfaction in this world today and never, don't find it and are still miserable and happy, unha- unhappy. Some just wish they would be dead. Some try to even take their own lives. Some are successful in it. Some try and fail. But ultimately, God is the one who gives life and who takes it away. In verse 7, John calls upon a prophecy about the Lord's coming in Joel 2, and he, he describes the demonic force as follows. He says, The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. None of it is to be understood literally, of course, but it's showing us how that Satan's demonic forces go about deceiving. It's through things like war, spiritual war, or it is a spiritual war, and we are tempted through things like wealth, through sexual desire, and the battle will be fierce, and the opponent is strong, and it's impossible to truly overcome their efforts outside of Christ. And they, these demonic forces, the demonic army, they all serve their king, who is Satan, the destroyer. He destroyed peace in the garden. He is a thief who seeks to rob, kill, and destroy. But the vision isn't done. There's another woe to consider, the sixth trumpet. And this judgment is not the final judgment, but it's connecting the previous judgments to it. Because now we see that the demonic activity is going to lead to spiritual and even physical death because of the three plagues that come here that come out of the mouths of these locusts that are like horses that have like a lion's face, the sulfur, the fire. And it brings death. Uh, Verse 18, there's a building up of judgment before the second coming of the Lord. And we're reminded again of God's sovereignty here in verse 13, because there's a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, the place where the saints and the lamb are where the prayers of the saints were lifted up before the Lord back in chapter 7, I believe it was. The voice of who must be God, and and into chapter 8 as well too. The voice of who must be God, the Father, or the Lamb, Christ Jesus, instructs the sixth angel to let loose four other angels who are bound against their will, who are prepared for a specific time and duty we read of in verse 15, to be released and to kill a third of mankind. The four angels, they're evil angels. We know that because they're bound like the ones who are in the pit, but they have a specific task to let free a massive, demonic, influential army from the region of the great river Euphrates. It's a number that John hears. He hears the number of them. It's a a massive army. If you do the math in verse 16, it comes to 200 million demonic agents set forth by the four to kill and to destroy. The fact that they're bound at the Euphrates is significant. It's going to be mentioned again in the sixth bowl, and there's reference to this event in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel's prophecy that we'll look at in the bowl judgments. But it's in reference to a spiritual place where Satan will marshal out his forces against God's people, according to what G.K. Beale says. And the four angels being not at the four corners of the world, like we're used to thinking of these angels this time, 
it's a mixing of metaphors, but at the, it's at the Euphrates, and that's to envision the worldwide scope of the spiritual battle that will take place at the end of this age, right before Christ's second coming. And the demonic forces here, differing from the ones in the fifth trumpet, they're able to bring about physical death. They do more harm. And so what John is seeing is the demonic forces that are in play at the hearts of men throughout the wars of history, especially leading up to that final battle, sometimes called Armageddon. Modernly, we might think of World War I or World War II and the atrocities that the, the Germans did to the Jews or what Mussolini did or the murders of Stalin in Russia or what's happening in China over the past few decades or in North Korea or even some of the shady war acts committed by the USA. All unjust war activity among nations, that's what's being seen here. But after the sixth trumpet sounds and devastation comes upon a third of the earth, what do we find? Do we find a world ready to rejoice and embrace Christ through faith? Do we find a world ravaged by these demonic hordes now and ready to repent of sin? Do we find a world which finally understands the treachery of Satan and is ready to renounce him? No. We don't. John, in verse 20, says, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. After all these warnings, the world still will not repent. People will not stop worshiping demons, they reject the gospel and the warnings of a final judgment, says Jesus, because a sinful world loves darkness rather than light. John 3.19 Therefore, one more woe will come upon the earth. A seventh trumpet will sound. It will announce that day non-Christians dread most. That day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world. And there's a lot of application that we can make from this, but I want to make, just mention two things that come to mind. So first, because of how chapter 9 ends, we need to recognize and affirm what the word teaches about the depravity of man. You see, people are not sinners because they choose to sin, but they choose to sin because they are sinners. Think of what verse 20 says. People who didn't get killed by these plagues, the demonic activity of trumpet five and six, and even those who lived through the demonic influence of the fifth trumpet, none of it was enough to cause the people to repent and give up worshiping idols worthless idols we read and they won't stop indulging their sins which attempt to satisfy them which only then serves to show that actually the self is an idol for many people uh, despite the carnage of war despite the false religion that is empty and leaves people void of fulfillment and rest and peace despite the harm that is done to individuals in pursuing happiness and peace, and I'm thinking of things like abortion and homosexuality and transgender dysphoria, and just all fornication in general even, uh, people remain unwilling to fear God and repent. They are totally depraved. Hearts are frozen cold toward God, and the events themselves that happen in this world which amount to judgment, which are communicating that all is not well and that something is amiss in the world that needs to be repaired and reconciled, they are not enough to melt the heart of, of a person so that that person seeks God. Often even, the calamities of the first four trumpets are, are, and the demonic activity of the fifth and the sixth trumpet are often used by God to further harden the hearts of humanity against the truth. People, ever since the fall of Adam in the garden, are innate sinners. It's humanity's default position. The truth of God is before all of mankind, 
and mankind is suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness, we read in Romans 1. But the problem goes even deeper than that. James, the brother of the Lord, writes that wars and fights among us are the result of sin in our lives. Why do you wage war and fight among yourselves? Is it not because of the sin that dwells in you? That people lust and they desire what they can't obtain, what they want, then they kill for it. This wickedness lives inside of humanity. And it especially leaves fallen humanity open to demonic influence like we read of. Listen to the Apostle Paul at the start of Ephesians 2. And turn here, you guys, so you guys can see this, please. And this is where we'll, we'll close in Ephesians 2 after the second point, because it's there as well. <coughs> but I want you to see this in Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul is laying out the problem of mankind before he sets up the grace of God in Christ as a solution to it. And so verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That, that is what it means to be totally depraved. That corruption is radical within us. That corruption that came upon mankind when Adam failed under the covenant of works. It means that even though we have physical life, we are in fact dead in our trespasses and sins. That mankind apart from Christ walks in trespass and sins. And it's the course of the world. It's the way of the city of man. And listen again to what the apostle says in verse 2. People who are separated from Christ and not united to him in faith, they are engrossed in and under the events described in these two trumpet judgments. Listen to verse 2 closely. And this is speaking about people who are now saved, but it's describing them before they were saved. And it says that they were following the prince of the power of the air. Said differently, following the destroyer king who is over the demonic forces in the world that we read about in Revelation 9. And the apostle goes on to describe him as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see this locust army with a face like a man and hair like a woman and teeth like a lion with iron breastplates and tails like scorpions and snake heads. It is demonic activity at work in the choices and the decisions of people who aren't saved and united to Christ. That is what they are doing. And it causes people to always live in the passions of their flesh and to carry out the desires of their body and their minds because they are by nature children of wrath. That is the radical corruption that exists in mankind apart from Christ. And it looks different in different people according to the wisdom of God. But John is showing us here that people not united to Christ are, have, have the work of Satan and demonic armies working in them at varying degrees, varying places and times at different levels. And that brings us to the second point of application. That there is, should be an urgency to repent and take refuge in Christ. The evil of this world isn't slowing down, friends. In fact, we have every reason, as these first two sets of judgments have been showing us, to think that it's only going to get worse until the, as the day of the Lord draws nearer. But that worsening isn't going to slow down the advancement of Christ's kingdom. The gates of Hades can't deter it. 
Christ is building his kingdom through the salvation of rebellious sinners, even through the sorts of events that we have been reading about. We see this with the sixth trumpet as we see the trumpets are done in connection with the altar of God. Remember when the sixth angel blows his trumpets, there was a voice from the golden altar before God, that altar that had four horns. Well, horns are often symbolic of power. And this is that same altar that the saints were under when it was, where they were cleansed by the blood of the lamb and they were clothed in white. And that is the power that we're to think of with this altar, the power to overcome the wages of sin and to reconcile people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, hence the four corners. And so in the Old Testament, the altar was the place of atoning blood and priestly intercession. It was the place of forgiveness and cleansing from the defilement of sin, standing just outside the veil of the most holy place the ark, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The golden altar was positioned by by God for in the for the propitiation of the his holy wrath and the expiation of sin's offenses so that sinners would be reconciled to him. And all of this was fulfilled by Christ in his coming, his priestly atoning sacrifice in which he offered himself in our place. That's why we see Christ back in chapter five as the lamb slain before the throne of God and why he alone was able and worthy to open the scroll which reveals all of these judgments. And so why is God allowing and bringing about all these judgments? Christ himself is sovereign over them and in control of them. We tend to think that these events are going against his loving purposes, but in fact, that's not true. They are part of his loving purposes for his elect. He brings about these wars and these calamities and demonic activity because the sins and sinners of the world absolutely deserve them. And then also because he wants us to know that we are not safe apart from Christ. And so these things themselves aren't what softens hearts and turns us to God, but they are warning us. They are trumpets announcing that there is a wrath to come. And I'm here to tell you that only Christ can save you from the wrath to come. That you must flee to Christ, for it is the only place of safety in light of the troubles and judgments that come upon this world. He's the only safe place because he's the only prophet, priest, and king. He's the living word of God. He intercedes between God and mankind and he atones for our sins with his own life, but he doesn't stay dead. He lives, he raised it on the third day so that he might live to make intercession for us and to be our advocate at the throne of God. For after all, we still sin. The flesh still remains with us even after we've been born again and saved. But he rules over us as our wise king who we receive with joy and gladness. And make no mistake, he's the king of all but it's only the church that receives him with joy and gladness. And so this fifth and sixth trumpet, they are warning for mankind to repent and to take refuge in Christ. Verse 20 tells us that the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues doesn't repent. But what are those who do repent? How is it possible for them to repent in light of these things? Especially considering what we read in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Well, do you or do these events cause you to rightly fear the Lord? and to seek his protection? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that you have to flee to him to be safe from these things? Do you desire to repent and do good, which is what many don't do, we read of in verse 20 and 21? Well, if you do, if you are doing those things, then it's because of what Ephesians 2 continues to say after verse 3. So let's read this. Look at it as I read it. Follow along with me, and we'll close with this. Verse four, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. All glory to God, church. He preserves us even through great trial and tribulation, so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we understand that there is a spiritual battle going on at all times in this world that a crazy amount of demonic forces whose stomping of could be heard, as it were, by John, have been released upon this world to accomplish your ends. Lord, help us to be aware of it. Help us not be deceived and to think that toying around with a little sin is okay. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be holy and to remind us that all those who are in Christ will overcome with Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hear your voice and to be at rest in you. Help us, Lord, to Fight the good fight of faith because of the, the, the work that you have done in our lives to bring us into your presence. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> okay, so long chapter tonight, guys. I know, I'm aware. Um, could be confusing in many ways. Does that stuff make sense about the demonic activity? Any questions? Try to make it as clear as I can. This is the passage, like if you read the Left Behind stories, they're saying that it's the Apache helicopters and stuff like that, which just totally, I think, leads to more confusion. Yeah. All right, guys.